Howdy all y'all podcast listeners, I'm Chris J. And I'm Sarah Abair. This is our first new episode of 2017, and it features storyteller Megan Shapiro. Megan's story was recorded live at our July 2016 live event, I Fought the Law. In her work as a capital defense attorney, Megan represents clients who've been sentenced to death, and they are mostly very poor and have very little resources. We've also got an interview with Megan after her story. It's one of the best we've ever had on the podcast, and you'll want to stick around to hear it. Before we go any further, though, we want to welcome back all y'all's returning season sponsor, Holiday Lanes. Holiday Lanes is a smoke-free, 44-lane bowling center located in Bossier City. It's a family-owned business, and they've had a huge presence in our community since 1960. We really want to ask all y'all listeners to please help us say thank you to Holiday Lanes for their support of life storytelling and grassroots media in Shreveport and Bossier City. Whether that means stopping by to bowl a few games, dropping them a note on Facebook, or giving them a follow on Twitter at Holiday underscore Lanes. Thank you, Holiday Lanes. We really couldn't do it without you. We also wanted to share the news that we're currently recruiting storytellers for our spring 2017 live storytelling event, I Just Work Here. We're looking for a few great stories about the working life. As always, we're looking for all kinds of stories. They can be funny, sad, inspiring, confusing. The only requirements are that your story has to be true, and you've got to be willing to get up on stage in front of a few hundred friends to tell it. So if you think you've got a story for I Just Work Here, please call our storyteller hotline at 318-582-0665 and leave us a message. Again, that's 318-582-0665. That storyteller hotline is exactly how we first met our inspiring friend, Megan Shapiro. I'm just calling back to finish my story pitch for July 16th. So where I left off was that it was the day of the execution for my client and that it was supposed to happen at a certain time. The minutes were ticking by and we were waiting for final rulings from the courts where we were still pending. After hearing a message that began so dramatically, we asked Megan to share her story at our live event, I Fought the Law. Here's her story that we're calling Sentences. About 10 years ago, I met my first client on death row. I was still a law student, 22 years old, um, totally broke. I was working in an unpaid internship in an unfamiliar city and subletting a stranger's futon in a tiny little apartment with no AC. Uh, My client was 34 years old. When he was a teen, he... um, was addicted to drugs, and his much older um, and frightening drug dealer paid him a little bit of money and some drugs to kill someone. The drug dealer then flipped as soon as the cops came to him, and he agreed to testify against my client to work out a deal for himself, and my client had ended up on death row. His trial was embarrassing even just to read about. His court-appointed lawyer, and there are wonderful court-appointed lawyers, uh, but this was not one of them, did nothing for him. And his court-appointed appeal lawyer, whose job it was to explain to the appellate court how bad the trial lawyer had done, also did nothing for him. 
By the time I met him, he, um, he was at the end of the line and he had nothing left. And honestly, he was just resigned to die. My job was to help some new volunteer attorneys that were coming in to try to come up with some way to save this man's life. And what I, what I was supposed to do was to help them um, draft petitions and appeals and file them as quickly as possible. And in the process, also keep the client updated on all the things that we were doing to try to save his life. And in addition to a number of other things, to look and see uh, what those things were that the trial lawyer failed to discover. The things that redeemed this man that showed that he was a human being and that showed that he didn't deserve to be executed. And those things were not hard to find at all. The reason that this young teen had started doing drugs so early was um, because his childhood had just been one horror after another. He had often been found alone in a dirty apartment as a toddler. When he was in elementary school, he witnessed a really bloody um, suicide attempt by his mother. He uh, was raised for a time by an aunt who punished him alternatingly by um, starving him or by forcing him to drink large quantities of water and other liquids. Uh, and two stepfathers in a row just brutally beat his mother constantly right in front of him. Those and many other things left him uh, emotionally and psychologically scarred and very, very vulnerable, not surprisingly. He felt really hopeless, and in fact, he did not think he'd even live to be 20. As a child, he just assumed that he would die that young. At some point in his childhood, he got it into his head that if he lived to be 35, he would have had this long, wonderful life. And unbelievably, to me, to this day, his execution ended up being scheduled for the day before his 35th birthday. When I met him, it was just weeks away. We, we did everything we could for him. Worked around the clock. And I spent a lot of time with him and I got to know him. I found him to be a very kind person and genuine and he cared so much for his family. And he was haunted by what he had done. In fact, he'd been remorseful from the very beginning if anyone had bothered to ask him. One of the things that I did was I went and found almost all of the jurors that had originally sentenced him to death. And I told them about all of these new things that we'd learned. And you know what they said? They said, why didn't his lawyer tell us that at the trial? That would have made a difference to me. But we filed all of our appeals and we filed all of our petitions and they were just being denied, denied, denied. And it became clear that this was really gonna come down to the wire. 
all of a sudden, the day of the execution was there. I had been waking up at the crack of dawn and rolling out of that futon, heading into the office and moving on to the next thing on the list that we thought we could try that might work for days, for weeks. And he had been waking up each morning and just feeling closer and closer to that lethal injection needle. And here we were on that day. And he was scheduled to die at a certain time that night. They were keeping him in this little holding cell right by the execution chamber. And there was a priest there with him. And he had these special clothes on just so he'd be ready to go. And we were sitting on our end by the phone, essentially, waiting to hear back from the last courts that held his life in their hands that day. Well, the time for his death came, but then it passed because, you see, we hadn't heard back from those last courts yet, and they couldn't execute him until that final decision had been made. First it was just minutes, and then it was hours. And we would talk to him on the phone, but we really didn't know what to talk about. We didn't have any updates. Uh, and sometimes it felt like he would be sort of trying to say goodbye, but he didn't really know how, and I, I didn't know what to say. And I was on the phone with him when a line, another line rang, and the lead attorney on the case ran out to another room to take the call. And he came back into the room with news. And I broke that news to our client right then on the phone, that the execution had been stayed and he would not be killed that night. I went and I wrote him a birthday card and I got it in the mail. And then a few days later, I got to visit with him in person and he told me about what that experience was like for him of waiting to die, but then not dying. I was so new at this. And since that time, I have uh, represented a lot more men and women, all poor men and women who are charged with crimes that carry a death sentence or are already on death row. And, and this whole time, I've I've looked back on that first case, and I've thought of it as a great victory. And it, and, and it validated for me that if you, if you work hard enough and, and you do what you're supposed to do, you believe in what you're doing, and you're right about what you're doing, then the system will, will do what it's supposed to do, and it will do what it did that night. And I've, and I've leaned on that. And it's given me comfort so many times when I have been working on something that felt hopeless and, and often when injustices were, were um, carried out against, against other clients. Luckily, I've, I've not had any other clients executed, but my career is still early. And this was something, this experience was very important to me just to hold in my heart. And then 
a month ago, I got a phone call from some new lawyers that are representing that client now. And the reason they were calling was that um, he has a new execution date set for later this summer. And this is the reason why. You see, that night, he didn't get his sentence changed. All he got was this absurdly attenuated win. He had been given the right to have an opportunity to ask a court to consider the possibility of giving him a hearing at which time he could argue for the right to get a new sentencing trial. And he went through all those steps and they didn't work. It's taken all this time and he's not getting that new sentencing trial. I, I continue to do this work because I don't believe that my government has the right to take my clients' lives away from them or from their families or from all of the people that they would positively affect for the rest of their lives, even from behind bars. And I feel proud that my job is to just try to stand in the way of that even if I don't succeed. I get to know my clients as so much more than just the worst thing that they've ever done. And I care about them as people. And for all of those reasons, I'll keep doing this. But I feel like I've finally realized something that I knew before, but I just don't think I could make myself fully believe. That in this system, this death penalty system, this arbitrary death penalty system that we have that's run by politicians and other flawed human beings who just shift the responsibility for these lives up and down the chain hoping that it won't stick to them. This system that we created as people in this country and that we allow to persist in this system, when something good does happen, it's just as likely to be a fluke as it is to be anything else. A small update on that case. Through media reports, Megan recently learned that her former client remarkably received a stay of execution based on claims that he didn't have adequate representation at his initial trial. And because he's been on death row for so long, his lawyer believes that it should be considered cruel and unusual punishment to make someone wait for two decades to find out whether or not they will be executed. This is a claim that's being considered more broadly throughout the country because so many people are waiting on death row for 20 to 30 years. I can't imagine going through something like that. The outcome, if one of those claims is found valid, is likely a new trial for this client, hopefully resulting in closure of the case. Sarah and I recently met up with Megan to talk about how she developed a passion for capital defense work and what a career that deals so directly with death has taught her about life. Before we play that interview, we want to thank our podcast sponsor, Maxcentric. 
MacCentric is Shreveport's only Apple premium service provider. Whether you've got an iPhone, MacBook, Apple Watch, or Apple TV that needs some attention, MacCentric can help you get back up and running. MacCentric is located in the shops at Bellmead Shopping Center on Uri Drive, and you can chat with their team by visiting them online at maccentric.net. Thanks, MacCentric. Here's our recent conversation with Megan Shapiro. My... Uh, my father was a criminal defense lawyer, just a solo practitioner, did a lot of court-appointed work my entire life growing up, and it was really eye-opening for me. I would meet his clients, I would spend time at his office, meet their families, go to court with him, help him with little things, and then as I got older, he would teach me how to do things that were more substantial. And I saw him really helping people, and I also saw him fighting for the underdog, we lived in um, Alexandria, Virginia, which is right outside of D.C., but it still very much has an independent city, smaller town feel. And so I grew up um, in school with adults in my life asking me as a child, um, you know, how could your dad represent X person that they read in the newspaper? I had to come up with answers for that. And I don't remember ever um, struggling to for myself to understand it, it was pretty intuitive for me because um, it had been such a fixture in my life. And I saw how um, much of a difference it made and how important it was to him. And I was proud of it, but I had to figure out how to explain it to people. So it kind of became part of the dialogue, I guess, of my my existence, I guess. When when I was very young, he had a death penalty case actually that, that ended poorly and um, the his client's name was Wilbert Evans. And he was executed in the very early 90s. But there were a series of events that combined to make that execution incredibly unjust. There were things written about it. There's, there were two very powerful dissents from Justice Thurgood Marshall once the case made its way to the United States Supreme Court, arguing that he shouldn't be executed. He had actually saved the lives of a pretty large number of prison guards and prison nurses during a large-scale escape from death row while he was awaiting his execution. But they executed him anyway. And it was it was a very, uh, very tragic event in my family's life. I mean, obviously more tragic for Mr. Evans's family, but, but my dad went through it, and I was extremely young. The escape from prison actually happened the year I was born, and then his execution was when I was about six years old. And um, my dad quit practicing law after that for a period of time. And he vowed that he would never do another capital case. But then after I started college, the Beltway sniper shootings happened. Dad got appointed to the case. And I remember him calling me and asking, and I think he called everybody in the family, if we would support him or what we thought about him taking the appointment. And we were all behind it because we understand the importance of a fair trial and defending the most hated people. And he did it. Um, it was hard for him, but he did it. And um, that case, you know, it unfortunately also ended in a death sentence. That really cemented for me the importance of standing up when nobody else wants to, the principle of it for the humanity of it, and I was lucky to be behind the scenes for that case and attend the trial. 
And that really cemented for me that this is what I felt I, I wanted to do, that I was in a good position to do it. From that moment on, that's pretty much all I studied and went to law school uh, at the University of Texas for that sole purpose to study capital defense law. And you are someone who faces the most like emotionally fraught daily life that that I can imagine. I mean, your job takes you to death row. And I just wonder if you have any advice for like putting one foot in front of the other when things are at their darkest. I think that reaching out to talk to other people is something that's invaluable and we all forget to do it a lot. That certainly happens to me when a big setback happens and I find myself wallowing a bit because these things are terrible things happen and sometimes it does feel insurmountable. But when you talk to other people and you remember that you're not the only one who's upset by something that's happening that your government is doing or that your community is doing to other people, you know, hurting other people. I mean, you're always, you should always feel proud about standing up, even if you know that it's not going to make any real change. You're part of a larger movement and you standing up and saying something is true is probably not going to make a real change or a lasting change in that moment. But it's the repetition of people standing up over and over again and just saying, you know what, I saw that and I, I don't think that's right. If enough people do that, then it really can make a change. So it's like being a foot soldier. You have to remember that you're part of something bigger than just yourself. And that's something that gives me strength. Thanks for listening to another episode of the All Y'all Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope that you'll share it with your friends on social media, or if you're feeling wild and crazy, tell folks about it in real life. If you listen to All Y'all through the iTunes podcast app, we hope you'll consider leaving us a review. iTunes recommends podcasts to listeners based on the number of positive reviews that they receive, so you'll be helping us reach new listeners by sharing your review. Thanks again for listening, Happy New Year, and keep your head up out there. Something tells us that in 2017, it's going to be more important than ever that we hear one another's stories and really listen to what one another have to say. Thanks for listening. Thanks, y'all.